Hey, this is Pastor Jeremy, and I want to apologize for the quality of this week's podcast recording. We had some technical issues, which we have since resolved, but this week's recording uh, is not the quality that you are used to if you listen regularly, nor what you should expect in the future. So here's week three of Building a Life of Influence. God bless. It's no secret that I'm a sports fan. I, uh, I love sports. I watch sports. I, uh, I had four fantasy football teams this year. Um, I love sports. Uh, it's transitioning from me down to my children, which I love. Um, I feel like that's one of my duties as a father. So um, I love it. I talk about sports. I watch sports. Uh, I love it. I really do. There's, there's no other word other than I love sports. Um, some of my conversation centers around sports. Maybe with some of you, I have talked to you about my favorite team or your favorite team. And if my favorite team won and your favorite team lost, I had great joy in having that conversation with you. On Sunday mornings when we gather and our volunteers are here, sometimes our conversations will turn to the games the day before, the games that are coming up today or the next day or this week. And I just love it. And, and, and I loved playing sports when I was growing up. Uh, what I loved about sports is that I was never really the, the best player on any team I ever played on. But, you know, I love that team aspect in sports. Um, I really did. I, I'm not just making that up. Like, I, I loved being on a team. Because what it did for me is it allowed me to accomplish things with a group of people that I could not accomplish on my own. And, and I loved that. I, I don't know why I had this innate sense about that, but I just loved it. I loved being with a team. I loved traveling with my team once I got a little older. And we actually did that in high school and then in college. I loved getting on the bus with my teammates and, and going somewhere, maybe to a hostile environment, to play and, and to win and shut up the opponent's fans. It was awesome. I loved it. But you know what happens with sports sometimes is we make it about the individual player. I mean, you think about it, right? The greatest basketball player of all time, and it's not up for discussion, is Michael Jordan, all right? So all the LeBron fans, that's great, but talk to me in about 30 more years. But Michael was the greatest player in the history of basketball, and so no doubt he was the greatest, but if you look at his supporting cast, you look at his team, you see guys like Scotty Pippen. Now, Scotty gets some good publicity, and I'm not talking about sports all day, so for those of you that are not sports fans, don't tune me out, alright? But Scotty Pippen, was, he was amazing. Like, he could be the baskets here, he's over here, and he makes a bank shot. You can't even see the backboard, and somehow he banks the shot in. He was good. But then you had other guys like Horace Grant, right? Nobody likes Horace Grant. Nobody's favorite player is Bill Cartwright, right? Bill Cartwright shot a free throw like this, okay? He looked like he had some kind of catch in his shoulder, but that's how he shot a free throw. But he was, he was an, a really vital piece to the teams that Michael Jordan played on. Steve Kerr, right? You never let a white man square his shoulders. He's going to make the three, right? So these guys surrounded Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan, even though he was the greatest basketball player in the history of the game, was able to accomplish some incredible feats as a team because of some of the guys and others that I just mentioned. There was a team aspect to them that allowed them to accomplish. Because here's the deal. If Michael Jordan showed up by himself, I don't doubt that he would have scored 40. I don't doubt it. Right? But he couldn't play defense against all five guys. And so 
there's probably no way that in one of those seasons that they could win 70 games. He probably doesn't win six championships if he is alone because he's just an individual player and he has finite ability in himself to compete against other teams. But when you surround him with other players, then they're able to accomplish as a team something incredible. Now, teamwork doesn't just begin and end in sports, right? Teams are throughout our culture. Businesses have great teams. Other than sports, something else that I love is Apple products, okay? About a decade ago, my family made the switch from PCs to Macs, and and we've never looked back. Um, When I mess with a computer now that has Windows on it, I honestly feel like I'm going to pull my hair out. And so I love Apple products. I believe I have two main callings in life, to win you to Jesus and to convert you to Apple. I think that's the two callings in life that I have. After we switched to Mac, then when the first iPhone came out, I got it. We've had iPhones since. We've had iPods, iPads. I I love Apple products. They're simple. I love the ecosystem where all of my stuff makes sense together. Um, I love it. And, And when you think of Apple, much like when you think basketball, you think Michael Jordan. You think Apple, you think Steve Jobs. Right? He came into a company and he, he, he had been with the company. They let him go. He came back to the company after making a bajillion dollars doing other great things. He comes back and transforms that company by taking that they had like a hundred products, whittling it down to six things that we're going to focus on and be excellent at. So if you're in business, you just take that model and figure out what are we doing kind of subpar? Let's whittle it down and do a few things excellent. Right? That was his philosophy. And so they did that and they continue to do that. But Steve Jobs by himself did not accomplish all the things that Apple's known for. You had names like Steve Wozniak, right? You had names like Johnny Ive. If you don't know who Johnny Ive is, he's that guy with the amazing accent that tries to tell you your life is worse without Apple products. Hello. I can't even do it. It's amazing, right? You just melt. It's the reason I buy all the Apple products. I listen to him and I go, I have to get that. I have to buy that. That's the greatest thing ever. My wife's like, what's the difference in the older? And I'm like, I don't know, but he told me I need it. So Johnny Ive is a part of this team. Phil Cook was a part of that team. He now replaced Steve Jobs. There was a team of people and hundreds of others, maybe thousands of others, that we don't even know their names that helped Apple and helped Steve Jobs to accomplish what they were trying to do, that they created incredible products and they made tons and tons of money and they did these incredible things because team is more productive than individual. I know that's difficult for some of us, especially you type A folks who get frustrated when you work with folks that don't do it exactly like you. But team is always more productive in the long run than individual. Always. And so when I think about team, I think I want to be on a team. I think I want to be connected to people who are headed the same direction as I am, who are trying to accomplish the same things I am, who I can work alongside and partner with to do something that matters. I don't want to be a silo. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be working on my own thing by myself and nobody's working alongside of me. I want to be working alongside others to accomplish those things. And and we've been in a series for the last couple weeks. And here's the thing about it. We've been focusing on one guy. His name is Nehemiah. 
He's in the Old Testament, and, and his book, Nehemiah, is between Ezra and Esther. And we can read about this story, and we have for the last couple of weeks. And, and today I want, if you've got your Bibles, to flip with me back to Nehemiah chapter 2. It's where we were at last week, and we kind of stopped in the middle of that chapter. But we've been talking about one guy, and here's this guy. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, the cupbearer would have been the guy who was kind of the taste tester of everything that the king would drink to make sure that the king wouldn't get sick. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, what we find is that he gets bad news. Nehemiah does, gets bad news about his people, the Jews, and the city of Jerusalem. That the walls have been torn down, and the place lay in ruins, and and the people are in disarray. And so he gets bad news, and he waits for about 90 days. And then one day he's in the, the presence of the king. And the king sees that he's sad. And the king says, why are you sad? And, and Nehemiah says, well, you know, why wouldn't I be sad? The place where I was born, the place my father's graves lie, my ancestors, that's our place. And it is in terrible shape. And, and so he has this conversation with the king. And we talked a little bit about this last week. But this is what he says uh, in Nehemiah 2, verses 4 and 5. The king, uh, so he asked the king for permission to go and rebuild the walls. That's what he says. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, listen to this, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. You send me there so that I may rebuild it. He also asks for letters from the king, giving him safe travels and all the timber needed for the task. And finally, the king sends officers of the army with him as well. But when he arrives in Jerusalem, so he leaves, he arrives in Jerusalem and he gets there and he does not immediately tell everyone his plan. He he doesn't immediately go to work. He gets out one night on a horseback, probably, maybe on a donkey, and he goes out around the walls of the city and rides out there at night to survey the damage, to figure out how bad is the situation that we're looking at here in the, in, around the walls. They're so bad at one place, the rubble from the walls has fallen down so bad, he, has to, he can't just keep going in a circle. He has to go out into the valley and come back to see how bad it actually is. And so he goes out that night and then he comes back to the people and then he begins to talk to the people. And this is where we're going to pick up today. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. This is what it says. Then I, Nehemiah, said to them, the people of Jerusalem, you see the trouble that we're in and how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, did you notice the change in language? Anybody pick up on it? What did he say in Nehemiah 2, verse 4 and 5? He said to the king that you may send me so that I may rebuild the wall. Right? That's what he said in verse 5. Send me so that I may. And then he goes and surveys the damage. And then he is rallying the people together. And in verse eight, uh, verse uh, 17, he says, come let us build the wall. It could have been for a couple of reasons. Maybe Nehemiah knew he couldn't accomplish it on his own once he went around, but I don't think he ever had any intention of building the wall by himself. Nehemiah understood what my pastor told me years ago at a church I was working at, and you've heard this. Team. Together, everyone achieves more, right? T-E-A-M. The idea that I, Nehemiah, can't rebuild the wall. That's not what God's even calling me to do. 
There are a group of people that are impacted by what's happening here and they're going to be a part of the solution as well. Let us rebuild the wall. What started out as one man became a team of people to accomplish this great task. Now, this is just an aside for those of you who are leaders in some area of your life. I think that you should read this portion of Nehemiah chapter 2 and gain incredible insight into what this leader, Nehemiah, did when he was addressing these people. Because what was amazing to me is the way that he even presented the problem and then told them what they were going to do and then encouraged them, I think is an incredible formula for leadership, especially when you're trying to rally people to accomplish something incredible. I've been reading a book recently by a guy named John Cotter, who is a professor at Harvard. And, and he the book's called Leading Change. And he, he kind of lays out something very similar to this. And this is, what, this is what Nehemiah does. He starts with this and says, you see the trouble we're in and how Jerusalem Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. The first thing that Nehemiah does that every good leader has to do when they are creating change is you have to identify the present reality. You cannot paint a picture of something that doesn't actually exist. You can't try to convince people that the the present reality is rosier than it actually is. If there are issues, everybody knows their issues. Just get them out in the open. So Nehemiah says, listen, you can see the trouble we're in. You can see that Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And so he paints the picture of the present reality first and foremost before he tells them anything else. And then he goes on to say, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now what he does after painting that picture is he creates a sense of urgency around their task. He says, come, let us build the wall. Why? So that we no longer suffer. We're suffering now. There's something bad happening to us. There's potential for even more bad happening to us because we are not protected by the wall. So come, let us do this so that we no longer suffer. There's a sense of urgency around it. If we just say, hey, we're going to go and do this thing at whatever point we finish it, then nobody's highly motivated to get it done. So there's a sense of urgency around the task. And then he encourages them in case the task seems a little overwhelming or they're not really sure how it's going to work out. He encourages them by telling them this. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. He said, listen, we're going to rebuild the wall. And that may scare you to death. But if it scares you, let me just tell you that before I ever started talking to you, God's favor was on me and it's on this effort. And not only that, the king is on our side. He sent timber. He gave me a letter for safe passage. You see those guys in the army standing right over there? The king sent them to protect me so that we could do this. He encouraged them. He creates the present reality. He creates a sense of urgency. And he encourages them in some way to accomplish what they're going to do. So Nehemiah gave the challenge. The people's negative feelings and negative reality becomes something positive. Their despair turns to hope. And then they begin the rebuilding process. And really what we see in Nehemiah chapter 3 is what that rebuilding process looked like. You can read through Nehemiah chapter 3. I encourage you to do it. We're not going to read all of it today. We're going to reference a couple verses here before we close. But in Nehemiah chapter 3, what you find is a bunch of people's names and the task that they did around the wall. It's listed there. There's just a bunch of people that you've probably never heard of. 
You've, you may not have never read their name anywhere else in Scripture. And Nehemiah wants you to know, because he's writing this. He wants you to know who they were and what they were doing. Look at this in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it and set its doors. Now, why is it important that we know, first verse of the rebuilding process, that Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests that were there rebuilt the sheep gate? Because sheep were a part of sacrifice. So the priests would have been connected to rebuilding the gate where the sacrificed animals had to come through. So they were connected. Not This was not an arbitrary assignment. They were connected on purpose to a part of the wall that affected who they were as believers, as followers of God, as, as the function that they had to carry out as priests. And I think if you were to trace some of the things that were happening around the wall there, you see other people that are connected by location... Because it will say they rebuilt the wall near where their houses were at. Nehemiah didn't just say, okay, there's a bunch of stuff around the wall. Go pick you a spot and build it. He said, listen, you see that spot that's right behind your house? You go build that part. Hey, priests, you see the gate where the sacrifice animals have to come through? You go rebuild that gate and consecrate it to the Lord. God doesn't just arbitrarily give you gifts or give you assignments. I believe that God uniquely blends together the personality that you have, the comfort you have doing certain things, the gifts that He has given to you by the Holy Spirit according to several passages in the New Testament. And I think He interlocks those things with the things that need to be accomplished. And when He's looking across the landscape, He goes, you know who would be perfect for this right now? You. You know who would be perfect for this task over here? That guy. You know who needs to build that gate? That girl. There, there, there's no arbitrary assignments in the kingdom of God. Everything is connected to a larger purpose. And so I encourage you, anytime that you get discouraged about where you think God has placed you or positioned you, step back just for a moment, remove your frustrations just for a moment, and ask the Lord this question. God, why do you have me here? What do you want to do through me? What is it that you position me here for in this moment? It's a tough question, but I think it reorients, it rephrases, it recaptures kind of the moment and actually what's taking place. So we read there that the high priests, they rebuild the sheep gates. I want to give you just a couple of other people and other names that are mentioned here. These were just interesting to me. These are people that were specifically mentioned by their vocation. This will not be on the screen. You can, make, you can write this down if you want to go look at it later. The list of people included some goldsmiths in verse 8 and verses 31 and 32. Perfume makers in verse 8. District and half-district rulers in verses 9 through 12 and 14 through 19. Some Levites, which is one of the tribes of people in verse 17. And merchants in verses 31 and 32. There was even a daughter, which was unheard of in this day. There was a daughter participating in verse 12. And so we see here that Nehemiah tried to make sure that if there was a specific group of people involved that you knew about it. It wasn't just the people from Jerusalem that were rebuilding the wall because we read about people from other areas of the countryside there who come to help rebuild the wall to say, and the people from Tekoa, not Tekoa, Georgia. That's a difference, a few miles beyond that. But the people from Tekoa came and rebuilt that portion of the wall. And the people from there and the people from... And so there's several places where, where Jews come from a distant place to come back and help rebuild the walls there. 
And what stands out to me is that there are people from different walks of life, even from different locations, participating in this rebuilding process. One of my favorite verses in this entire book or the two verses together are verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, flip over there. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 3, and this is what it says. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. So think about this. Standing beside one another, rebuilding the wall, was a goldsmith and a perfume maker and the governor. Okay? Goldsmith, perfume maker, district ruler. Three different walks of life. Three different vocations who all stood shoulder to shoulder to accomplish the task. And I wrote this down, and it's bolded here if you could see my notes so that we didn't miss this. Their vocation didn't determine their location of service. Their vocation didn't determine their location of service. And here's how that applies to me and you. Your vocation does not determine your location of service for God. Because some of us think... That the work of God is only done through the church. And it's only done through the, the Christians or the church leaders or the staff or the pastors. And that is not anywhere in the Bible. So it sounds great except that the Bible gets in the way. Ephesians tells us that the, the, the role of, of the church leaders is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's what it says in Scripture. So what it's saying here is that we all have a task. I have a job, you have a job. And, and, and the vocation that we, we possess, that we do, outside of, 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 of church, if you will, outside of the kingdom work, and that doesn't mean that you can't do kingdom work on your job. This is not to create a secular and sacred partition to your life. But it does say to me that when I know I am about the Father's business, I am doing the kingdom work, then the vocation that I have, the way that I support my family, has no bearing on my location of service for God. That a, a goldsmith and a perfume maker and a district ruler can stand side by side to do the work of God. And, and here's where I think a lot of us have gotten in trouble. We have exempted ourselves. Not because we're lazy, not because we don't want to. We don't think we're good enough. We don't think we're the person that God would choose. We think we don't have the right family history. We haven't been in church long enough. We haven't grown up in the church. We, we weren't baptized as a child. Our name wasn't found anywhere on any church membership role, anywhere, and never has been. We think maybe we've made too many mistakes in our past. God would never use somebody like me. We think that we're not faithful enough now. We think that there are reasons that God wouldn't trust us. He wouldn't use us. And so we don't have the right skill set. We don't have the right job. We don't have the right personality. We don't have the right background. There's some reason that God would not use us. And here's what I would say to you today. God isn't as interested in your ability as He is your availability. Right? 
God's not as concerned as you are with the specific details of why you're not capable of doing what He needs you to do. God just wants you to be available to Him to be used. I said it last week, and I'll say it again. God's not calling you to go do anything, anywhere, that He's not going with you. There's an assurance in that. There's a peace that exists in that for me. Because God's not as interested in my ability. He's more interested in my availability. And one of... I've said it a couple times. I hope it never becomes a cliche. But I love this passage of Scripture too. This is in the New Testament. You don't have to flip there. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says this. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. God's looking for your faithful service. He's wanting you to use whatever you have, not for you, but for the sake of others. And guess what it says right here? Leave this verse up, guys. Guess what it says right here? Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. There's no loophole. There's no out. You're not excluded. It doesn't say each of you who grew up in the church should use whatever gift you've received. It doesn't say each of you who has never made a mistake should use whatever gift you have received. It doesn't say each of you who has been volunteering in the church for long enough should use whatever gift you have received. It doesn't say each of you who are church members, each of you who are tithers. It doesn't say each of you who are married with children. It doesn't say each of you who are single. It doesn't say each of you who are retired. It says each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Nehemiah understood that to accomplish the task, it took a team. He knew. But he told the king, I am going to go rebuild the wall. But he asked the people, come let us build the wall. We have some of the most incredible servant leaders I've ever been around in our church at both of our campuses. And and specifically at this campus. The people that I interact with the most are at this campus. They're some of the most incredible servant-hearted people that you've ever met in your entire life. And I'm not just saying that. They're incredible. And, And they give of their time. They give of their energy. They give up their their talent, their resources, their giftedness. They do things they're uncomfortable doing sometimes because they understand that it's about something far greater than themselves. And I want to just show you, we're not not building a wall that I know of. But we build something every Sunday when we come into this building. And most of you who who come and you show up in time for church, you never see. We talk about it. Maybe you have a sense of it. Maybe you do understand it. But you, you never really see sometimes the things that they build and the things that they build around. We're not building a wall, but every Sunday we build something. And I want to show you really quickly a video that I think kind of helps all of us to see what they build every week. Let's show this, guys. We're not, we're not building a wall, but every week we build something. 
And here's the amazing thing about it. The, the beginning of that showed this really clean stage that we come in and we put stuff on. I'm going to do something here. I want to pull back the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Let's see if you can see this. We rent this space from a high school. And there's a set here that they're going to use in a, in a production a couple months from now. So every Sunday when we come in, we never quite know what's going to be back there. It could be a monster. We don't know. But here's what happened. There was a young man who stood on a ladder today for an hour to cover it up so that you wouldn't be distracted while you worship. Every Sunday we walk into classrooms where during the week students use them for history classes and and study hall and detention and a drama classroom and a choir room, an art room. And we move that stuff out of the way to create a space so that in those moments someone can get down on the floor and say to a three-year-old, Jesus loves you. We're not building a wall, but we're building something. And it takes an incredible team of people to do that. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to embarrass the heck out of some of them. If you volunteer in our campus in any way, you work in children's, you're a part of the media team, you're in the band, you're an elder, you're on our prayer team, you're on guest services, you're a life group leader, you help in our outreach, I want you to stand and come down here to the front and face me. Come on. Most of them had no idea we were doing this. Come to the front. Keep coming. We'll make room for you. Let me say to you, we're not building a wall. But every Sunday you build something. And not everybody sees what you do. But the Lord does. He called us to this work. And I want you to know that I'm so happy to be on the team with you. I believe, and I've said it for a while, that this year is going to be our best year yet. I also think it's the most pivotal year that we've had in our history so far. I believe the Lord's kind of moving some things, shaking some things in and through us. And I think that this year kind of sets the tone for the rest of our future. And I'm glad we get to do that together. I want to pray for you. So if you can just maybe throw a hand over that shoulder, hug somebody, hold their hand, whatever's not too awkward. Guys are, you know, just bump up next to each other. That's okay. I want to pray for you, all right? God, I thank you for this group of people here. There are others who couldn't be here today. There's a group of children's volunteers in that hallway over there loving on our kids and teaching them about you. And they're not standing beside us in this moment, but we stand with them. And God, right now, I thank you for this team. I thank you for their heart to serve you and to accomplish what you've called us to do. And so, God, as we step continually into our future, never knowing exactly what it is you're going to do, God, let us continue to be faithful and continue to serve others with the gifts that you've given to us, gracefully administering your grace in its various forms. We thank you for that. 
Let this next year be the best year yet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. You can be seated. Can we give them a hand? Now, as we close the message today, I want to give those of you who are not currently serving an opportunity to do something. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, you're not ready, or if maybe you don't really call this place home yet and you're still checking us out, that's okay. This is probably not for you. Maybe. Only you know. We're launching something today to kind of grow that team. To grow the team of people that God has entrusted to this place to accomplish the great things that He wants to do in and through us. In your worship guide today, there was a card that says 14 and 14. I want you to take it out if you would. 14 and 14 is not supposed to be a fancy marketing campaign. We're not that slick. 14 and 14 is an opportunity for those of you who are not yet serving, but call this place kind of your home. You attend here pretty regularly. Maybe you attend here very regularly. But for one reason or the other, at this point, you have not been involved in a serving opportunity through this campus. 14 and 14 is a simple concept that says, I am committing... Or I am interested, I'm making myself available to serve 14 times in the year 2014. We're really creative, I know. When we get to 2027, we're going to be serving all the time, right? I'm just saying, hey, listen, I don't serve right now, but I'm, I'm willing to serve 14 times in 2014. It's about once every three weeks or so at this point in the year. Now, if you say, I know I can't serve that much, I travel with my job, we, we've got a, I've got other things going on, there's no way I can commit to that. Do not set this card aside and feel like you still can't do it. You can still fill it out. We're going to contact you individually after this to follow up. And we're going to help you figure out where's the best place to serve, how regularly can you serve. We will not over-obligate you and we will not ask you to serve more than you are willing to serve. We currently have two teams. We're rolling to three teams over the next four weeks. And so you're just going to kind of plug into those places to help us accomplish what we believe God's called us to do here. And so that's what 14 and 14 is. It just says, I am willing to help my church reach and serve more people by serving in one of our Sunday morning serving opportunities. I would do so by participating in our 14 and 14 campaign or by joining one of our three teams to serve on a rotation. So you say, I'm willing to kind of serve 14 times and I'll work out the details. Or I know I can serve very specifically every third week. And you can, you can mark that here. And then there's just some things at the bottom. Things that say, I'm comfortable talking to strangers. We're not asking you to sign up to always work in the nursery. We're saying, hey, tell us a little bit about who you are. We'll help connect you. We won't just assign you. We'll talk to you and connect you to a place that matches the way that God's uniquely gifted you. So I'm comfortable talking to strangers. Technology doesn't intimidate me. I love holding babies. Kids don't get on my nerves. Details and spreadsheets get me excited. I'm comfortable talking to groups of people. I enjoy have people, having people in my home. If there's something else that describes you, write it at the bottom. That's okay. This is just an opportunity for you to say, listen, I'm not currently serving. Doesn't mean I don't love this place. Doesn't mean I haven't wanted to be involved. Well, maybe I was involved before, but I'm not right now. But I'm willing to fill this out, have a conversation moving forward to grow the base. Because here's the thing. Can I just be honest with you for a minute? Look around. This is where we are. This is not where we're going. 
who we are right now, this is not where we're going. I believe with all of my heart, God has some really big things in store for this campus in the next 12 months. Some growth things, some numeric things, sure, some spiritual things. I believe with all of my heart that we're going to reach people in this community. Even with all the great churches, I love so many of the churches in this community. I've got lunch or coffee with a ton of those pastors, and we do it pretty regularly over the next couple weeks. I love those guys. This is not about competing against churches. This is about going after lost people. And all of us desire that. And I believe that the empty seats that you see will be filled. Here's this cool principle that we see in the Old Testament with the prophet who comes up on a widow got some debts and the creditors, the debtors, they're coming to take her sons. She says, I need something. She's expecting, I think, maybe some money. He tells her to go and get some empty jars and to take the oil that she has, which is just a little bit, and to start pouring it into the jars. And she only started with a little bit of oil, remember, but here's the cool thing. The Bible says as long as there were empty jars, the oil still flowed. I believe that a principle about the nature of God is that wherever he finds willing, open vessels, he pours himself out there. We need some of you to be empty jars. We want God's blessings here. We want him to pour himself out here. We want lost people to come in and find Christ. So today... If you would say, I want to be a part of that too. I want to be on the team. Fill this out. Just a moment. If you get done, you can drop it in the offering bucket that will come by. If not, you stop and drop it at the next steps table in the lobby. Or maybe you hang on to it this week and you bring it back next week. That's okay too. I promise you, we will not manipulate you. I'm too committed to what God wants to do here to burn you. We want to be trustworthy with you. We want to earn your trust and keep your trust because we want you to be teammates, not grunt workers. We're in this together. And I believe we're going to see God do great things. So I want you to stand, if you would, everybody in the room. And we're going to pray a prayer of dedication over us. Not those of us who are serving and those of us who aren't. Not just those of us who are filling out the card. Those of us who don't feel like it's time yet. That's okay. There's no guilt or condemnation here. This is just us laying it out and you responding if you feel led. But we're going to pray a prayer of dedication over us as a church and us as a campus. And we're going to say, God, let us be open vessels, empty vessels. Let us create space for you to fill. Let us create the space for you to pour out. God, I thank you now for what you've done in the two plus years that we've been in existence. We've seen 80-something people commit their life to Christ. We've seen people baptized in water. We've seen marriages restored. We've seen money given to go around the world in missions and here in the United States to plant churches. We've partnered with local outreach opportunities to bless them as best we can. We've connected to people in this community. And God, we believe it's just the beginning. And Lord, we want to create empty space so that you can fill it. 
And so today we're saying we want to be a part of the team. We want to be a part of the work. Maybe we can't commit to serve, but we'll commit to pray. Maybe we can't commit to serve, but we'll commit to give. God, whatever it is that we're going to do, we want to be a part of your work in this community that you called us to because you had a plan. You had a vision for this work. And God, we want to see it accomplished. So help us, God. Let us see incredible salvation, spiritual awakening. God, continue to move us towards the permanent location that you have designed for us to accomplish all the things that you have in store for us. But ultimately, God, we seek you first. God, let us create space for you to fill. I thank you now for every person that is considering joining the team. Give them strength. Give them courage. Let them know that they can trust us because we're trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray. If you're listening at this point, it means you endured the quality of that recording. So again, we apologize for that. We'll be better again next week. Thanks so much. God bless.